You're listening to the From the Hack Curling Podcast, part of the Curling News and Sports Illustrated Partnership. Hi everyone, my name is Frank Rock and welcome to the From the Hack Curling Podcast. On this week's episode, we chat with a two-time world junior champion who won his first event with his new team in Red Deer last weekend. And we also chat with a Canadian Olympian who helped her team to a third title this season in Red Deer. Hello everyone, thank you for joining me this week. Once again, my name is Frank Rock. My first guest this week is a popular guest on the podcast whose team has been on a roll this season. Emma Miskew joins me just a few days after Team Owen won their third event of the season, this one in Red Deer. Emma, congrats on winning the event in Red Deer on the weekend, uh, where your team swept through the event, qualifying A-side and going undefeated. Uh, smaller non-slam events, Emma, such as Red Deer, are when the top teams often have a hiccup or two because, you know, your focus might not be as keen as it is when you're at a slam. It must have felt good to work your way through that event in Red Deer without much stress, at least not until you reach the playoffs. Uh, yeah, definitely. I think... Um... Every time we go to any event, like we're trying to play our best and to um, learn from every shot and um, use it as training as well. So just committing to how we're going to throw it. And um, I thought we did a really good job of that. And um, sometimes the line scores weren't indicative of kind of how the game was going. It would just be one one big end or, and then it kind of blew it open. But um, yeah, a lot of people, a lot of teams made a lot of great shots against us. And we had a, a, real, a battle against laws. So that was really good, and we hadn't played them yet this year, so it was a it was an overall great event. So, Emma, when your team draws up your schedule before the season, what are the key factors in determining which two or three events you will play outside of the slams, the points bet invitational, and the Scotties or playdowns? Is the deciding factor more timing based or location based? I would say it's more about the timing, and then um, we look into just because we want to make sure that when we're going into the events that the points uh, will be good, the, the tour points. So if we go into an event and uh, we're the only, like one of the hiring teams in it and the next few teams aren't there, then the points might not be high. And we want to make sure that um, if we go into events that the points are good. So that factors in as well. And, and usually that a good indication of the points being good is whether the purse is good. So those are kind of the three factors that we look into, but it's mainly trying to fit it into our schedule so that we have good rest and recovery and um, a good amount, uh, the right amount of competition and then the right amount of training. Um, This particular instance going into Red Deer, we uh, came pretty much right off the slam. We had only like three days at home, which we don't normally do, but we liked Red Deer last. We liked the event, so we decided to go anyways. So how does that play out during the off-season, Emma? Do the events tell you who's registered for an event before you sign up? Do you do you contact other teams to check if they're, if they're playing in a certain event? How do, you, how do you choose regular tour events you will play in if you don't know who else will be there? Um, we don't actually have any f- concrete answers for that usually. Um, we just know because if the purse is good then a lot of teams will typically go to those events or depending on timing uh at the start of the year the shootout uh was before the points bet event and uh, being in alberta and there's a lot of teams in that area we figured that there would be a good amount of teams there so we don't really ask people or 
contact the organizers and see who's in the event. We just can tell based off of, um, yeah, what the purse is going to be. And then when the timing of the event is, and we're usually fairly accurate with getting into events that other teams are also in. And your team tweaked the lineup during the offseason with Tracy Fleury now becoming the full-time third uh, with Rachel returning to calling the games. It has obviously worked out really well as you are now 26-3 and three so far this season, winning three of the five events you've played in. That said, you were also pretty good last year going 53-17 and 17 with four titles. What went into the decision to make this change? Well, um, a couple of things. Uh, first thing, like, it's not always easy for the last rock thrower to not be seeing all the lines throughout the end. Uh, So we thought that that was something that um, was important to Rachel is just being able to make sure that she's seeing all the lines that she needs to see to feel as confident in the ice as possible. And um, that's something that when you're sweeping, you will see some of the lines and you'll see some of the lines on your own throws. And she would have seen some of them on Tracy's, but uh, when she's in the house calling the game, she's seeing all of it. So that was one factor. Um, And uh, also it's just, while we did well, also great last year, and Tracy calls a great game, uh, it was a little bit, um, time management was a a little bit of a struggle as well, just from going back and forth down the sheet uh, twice. Like it was almost like, almost like it was four skips rocks. So that was just another factor that played in. So we just figured like we would try this out and Rachel did want to be able to um, make sure she was reading the ice the best possible. And um, yeah, that, that was basically it. And everyone on our team, like from the start has said, whatever is best for the team we are good with. So Tracy's been doing great. She worked really hard over the summer in the gym and she's been sweeping hard. So um, it's been great so far. Emma, you're so young, uh, but it certainly feels like you have been around the elite curling scene for a long time now, as many curling fans have essentially watched you and Rachel grow up in front of us over the years. Aside from the fact that playing well gets you points and more money at events, what keeps you motivated early in the season, midway through an Olympic cycle at this point in your career? Well, I think that I play that way. I mean, Joe ended up retiring because those elements were it was hard to get motivated and she wasn't loving the committing to going to practice and doing all that stuff um to be good whereas i i still love all of that i i love training i love um trying to get better i love um, being on the road with my team i love hanging out with them um so regardless of the result of the game i enjoy competition and i'm um I'm a high achiever and like a lot of aspects, I like to push myself to be the best that I can be. And I, that that's motivating enough for me. So I don't really think about where we are in the Olympic cycle. And I honestly don't like putting so much emphasis on just one event every four years. And the reason for that is because then you're not enjoying the moment for four years. And I don't think that's healthy. <laughs> I think that it's really there's so many great parts of this sport and every slam matters and every event matters. And um, we're getting gearing up and trying to get ready for the Scotties this year. Um, And, and that really matters. And um, to only think about one event every four years is on it. By the time we got there um, and then we won it in 2017, it's like, there's so much attention and emphasis on this one thing when so much else matters. So I've really tried to commit to, enjoying everything else and it's not forced I really do enjoy it but there's so much more to the sport than just the Olympics that's obviously everyone wants to go to the Olympics and everyone wants to be able to experience that and you want to stand on the podium but 
um, to only think about that for the years leading in, I don't think is healthy. And I think that it's, if you are only doing that, then you're probably not in the sport for the right reasons. In December last year, I'm on News Emerged that a new players association had been created with Nick Adina as the interim president. You were named as executive member of this group to represent Canadian curlers, along with Tyler Tardy, if memory serves. Can you provide an update on where we stand regarding the evolution of this organization? What are the next steps for the group? Yeah, we're still trying to navigate exactly what that looks like and um, how we can move forward with being able to provide feedback to organizations on behalf of the players. Uh, we have met, uh, we met in Niagara Falls as well. Um, we have a, a group chat that um, is going, which is with like conversation and questions regarding different elements of the game and where we think that there could be changes or we should ask some questions. So it's in progress. These things take some time to get going usually. Um, so we're just trying to navigate where our place is and how to how to speak up when we need to and how we can meet when we need to um but uh the conversation is there and um hoping to to kind of keep progressing in the right direction emma over the past few weeks i've spoken off the record with a few curlers who have competed at the slams this season and they've expressed some frustration at the fact that the slams have stopped playing tiebreakers was there a conversation between the organizers of the slam sportsnet and the players about this change and how was it justified to the players it was not um it was communicated with the players ahead of time but it wasn't the question wasn't asked whether the players would be happy with that should that change uh so we we did have the information. Um, we have had conversations, some players with sports, and there's, some, there's been some discussions among players um, to try to have a conversation just to figure out if we can get to some middle ground. Um, I don't, I know that in the world level and at the Scotties, your um, LSD, so your last tone draw accumulation, they do matter. But and in the worlds, you can get eliminated on your LSD. And I think that was a bit of an argument. Uh, what's different here is that um, we're only playing four games. So if you go two and two and you have a couple bad draws, it's like a double elimination. Whereas at the world level, you're playing a lot more games. Uh, so if your LSD comes into play, it means you've probably lost a few games and you're trying to get in. At, and if you also have bad and bad total LSD, then at that point, you're like, okay, well, we lost four or five games or however many games it is. And we had a bad draw. Like you can't really argue that situation because there's been a big, a way bigger sample size to include. Um, and at the world level, they also include, they drop two draws of all the draws that you throw, um, which I think it's like, so you 22 of 24 count. And at the, the first event this year, only four of eight counted. So we were like, well, and then they changed it to six of eight for the next one. I think the, I think it's hard to compare. I, I know like the worlds, you get eliminated on your LSD. And that's, that's something that they decided to do. And I think that that's okay. I just, I think with only four games, um, that's hard to do because a double elimination with so much on the line for these teams and the points and the, the money and all that, um, I think it's just not ideal. And um, we're hoping that, the tiebreakers will come back um, in the near future. That's uh, we've, we we're hoping. <laughs> so there's always um, a tough 
balance between what's good for TV and what's good for the competition side. And I think that having conversations is the only way that we can find a middle ground and get something that works for, for both sides. On a lighter note, Emma, for the past couple of seasons, Team Holman has grown a little bit. I think there are now five toddlers surrounding the team. How has the environment changed around Team Holman now that the family has grown a little bit? Yeah, it's definitely fun. They're actually, um, the little ones haven't been on the road with us very much, only a couple of events. So um, we got to, I get to see them. I mean, we were just out in Red Deer and um, Rachel's family came. And so I got to, I got to see all the kiddos, which is awesome. Um, But yeah, the dynamic in terms of, on the road like at the hotels and during competition like from now until the scotties it's kind of just the same it's the the four of us and coach so um same as it's been in the last few years so it's it's still fun they still like facetime and get all the cute pics that we get to to look at uh but yeah it, it hasn't changed too much actually uh but uh yeah it's it's still fun to be anti always <laughs> And finally, Emma, just as we were about to start this interview, Curling Canada announced that the next Olympic trials will take place in Halifax, Nova Scotia. What are your thoughts on that selection, and have you ever competed in Halifax during your career? Um, love it. I, I think Halifax is a great city. It'll be fun for all the fans that get to go as well. It's uh, a great environment there. I mean, the, the food and everything is amazing. Uh, we've played a lot in the surrounding area of Halifax, but not and I don't think I've ever played in the city. I don't, I, I would have to, I honestly would have to ask my dad, he would remember, but um, I think I, we've played uh, like in Churro a couple of times and in Picto. Um, so we fly into Halifax a little bit, but I don't think we've played there. Um, I'm excited. I think it's going to be really fun for everyone. And uh, it's a little bit closer to home for us than if it was um, out west for our families to, they can almost drive out, which isn't so bad for them. So I think that'll be, yeah, that'll be exciting. Hopefully we qualify for there, but um, I, uh, I'm hopefully excited to be playing there. My next guest on this episode is a two-time world junior champion who made the big move from skip to second this year. Jacques Gauthier joins me a few short days after winning his first event as a member of Team Kevin Cooey. So Jacques, I want to take you back to Red Deer last weekend for a couple of moments to start off this interview. Uh, I'm assuming that uh, it was uh, pretty sweet winning your first ever title as a member of Team Cooey in Red Deer, especially after losing a couple of finals earlier this season. Yeah, that was a nice one to close out. Um, you know, like, as you mentioned, uh, we lost two finals this year. And I mean, the first one that we lost, we had a shot to win and missed it by probably a millimeter. Uh, so, that you know, that one kind of, it's been sticking in the back of our minds. So it was nice to kind of pick one up. We played well throughout the week. Um, you know, we had some, some misses here and there, but uh, I mean, we had a great, you know, great start to the week and then had a great, uh, a great day yesterday, obviously picking up uh, three straight wins against three great teams. So, you know, really, really happy with the guys and we're, uh, we're, we're a fighting team and I kind of, it kind of showed throughout the season so far, but it was nice to kind of get the job done. You played Team Clyder of Saskatchewan in the final, a team that you had played earlier in the round robin, Jacques. When you see a team for a second time at an event, do you go back on your debriefing notes from that earlier game to see if there is a weakness on the other team that you can exploit, or do you stick to your game plan regardless of what you may have learned about an opponent in a previous game? That's a great question, actually. Um, You know, I think 
there's a lot of teams, you know, you like to get a scouting report on early. Um, and, and like you said, like you can identify some weaknesses maybe early in the event, but uh, the, the Clyder team is a very, very good team. I think that's a team that has worked insanely hard at the game and, and, and there is also shown, I mean, they've gotten so much better. They're so strong and they don't really have a lot of weaknesses. Um, if any, honestly, like I, I think, you know, our first game, what we what we took from it personally, or what I took from it personally, is we didn't play our best game. Um, and we still, you know, we had control late in the game and kind of let that go. The team Clyder played some really good ends late, and we didn't, and we let them back into the game, and then Kev had to draw the pin to win. So for us, that's what we took out of the game, is that, you know, we've been, we kind of dropped the ball, and we still kind of scraped away with a win, and so that you know, if we give Kev a better performance in the final, then we should we should be looking good. But again, that the Clyder team is not a team that we ever take lightly. I mean, they they uh, they smoked us in the points bet, and we'll remember that for the rest of the year for sure. So, yeah, I mean, I think we did learn from the first one, but what we learned was that we just got to play a little bit better and be a little bit sharper, and that's true for any team. Jacques, you and I haven't spoken uh, since the announcement that you were joining Team Cooey late last season. Can you walk me through that process? Was it Tyler that reached out to you first, or or did you get the call from Kevin Cooey himself? That's funny. We, Me and Kev actually talked about this last week because Kev thought it'd be a good idea to get Tyler to, you know, give me the call, given, you know, him and I are very, very close. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was funny because he, you know, so after the Briar, which just kind of, thinking about the week and coming down from it. it wasn't really thinking about next year at all. Um, and I had no, had no real thoughts about leaving my team. Like I was very proud of my guys and everything. And so Tyler said, you know, I know it's kind of just after the briar, but don't make any decisions about next year. I've heard about this team. There's some, maybe some opportunities for you, you know, don't make any, you know, don't make any decisions. And so I'm like, okay, he's very, Tyler's very cryptic. Like he's, he's very, he's very close to the chest with how he plays his cards and everything. And so, and I'm like, well, okay, well, how long should I wait? You know, like I can't wait for forever. You know, like I have, my team wants to talk about next year and all that kind of stuff. He's like, well, wait till the end of the week. So then he gives me a call. He's like, yeah, so I've heard some teams are moving and there's maybe some opportunities for you. I'm like, okay, well, who, like, who would I, who should I reach out to? He's like, well, there's an opportunity with team Cooey. And so I was like, okay, like, why didn't you just tell me that? And so anyway, we kind of talked about it for a bit and uh, I told him I'd think about it. And Kevin called me the next day because he, you know, as I mentioned, Tyler keeps his cards pretty close to his chest. And Kev wasn't super sure that Tyler did a great job selling me on the, on the, on the position and the the opportunity. So he kind of reached out just to make sure that, you know, he knew or that I knew that he really wanted me on the team and that he was excited about the opportunity. And then, yeah, we kind of just went from there. I took a few days to think about it. It was obviously a big, a big decision for me to, you know, just uh, move down to play front end for the first time ever, you know, play out of a different province and all that kind of good stuff. But uh, yeah, I mean, when Kevin Cooey calls, it was hard not to get excited about it. I just wanted to kind of calm down, make a rational decision. And here we are. You just mentioned having to play front end for the first time in your career. You did play some third back in juniors, but never had to sweep rocks at the elite level, at least in men's play. How did the move from skip to second force you to change your approach to off-season training, Jacques, especially in an era where sweeping is increasingly critical in the success of the top curling teams? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Like, I've gotten a few texts this year from people saying, oh, like, it looked like you hit the gym a little harder this summer and whatever, and that 
the fact is, is that you can't build muscle, you know, in, 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 a, in a matter of a few months. So for me, it, this actually kind of goes back to my junior days and the first, the year that we lost the Canadian semifinal to none other than Tyler Tardy, I kind of made a decision that that was, that the curling was something that I wanted to put my all into. And so I kind of, that's when I actually started picking up the weights and trying to just put on weight because I knew that the best way that's, this is kind of around the time that Matt Dunstone made his move to go play front end for Steve Laycock. And so, um, you know, I figured the best way to get the, the best way to get on a good team and get to the ranks is you got to pay your dues, play front end for a little bit, and you're not going to be able to play front end on a really good team. Like you said, if, if, cause I was, I weighed like 145 pounds. So, um, yeah, that's kind of when I started. I've been pretty active in the gym for yeah four or five years now and trying to put on as much weight, as much muscle as possible. But this summer especially, I was trying to, you know, bulk maybe a little bit more, try to try to weigh in at probably heavier than I'd want to and then cut a little bit before the season. And so uh, the first couple the first couple events of the year, I was heavier, um, you know, kind of by design. I was heavier than I'd ever been. Um, in order to put some more weight on the brush. And then, you know, the cardio obviously came with the sweeping, but it was a tough lesson to learn because I'm kind of kind of getting cardio on the fly. And Kark was laughing at me after a couple of big sweeps. I was panting pretty good and, and still am, you know, still still getting used to that. But, uh, no, I think it's, it's, a, it's a long process for anybody. Um, like you said, the, the best teams in the world are arguably the best sweeping teams in the world. I think like the Italian team, that Retornes team is probably the best sweeping team in the world right now. And that's why I think they're probably the best team in the world right now. But um, yeah, it's a process. We're trying to get stronger and bigger all the time. And um, you know, I think Kark's a big guy too. So I'm just trying to keep up with him. Speaking of Kark, Martin, how much have you been leaning on his experience as an elite front end player this year, Jacques, as you've progressed in your transition from skip to second? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Kark's been one of the best in the biz when it comes to, well, everything, but especially sweeping. Um, you know, and he, I told him at the beginning of the year, you know, you're not going to hurt my feelings. If you see things that you want me to do, if you see ways for me to improve on sweeping, you know, just be transparent and tell me you're never going to hurt my feelings or step on my toes. You know, I, I'm here to learn. And um, like you said, I mean, I, I played third for a bit, but I was on the other side, actually. This is the side that I'm sweeping on now. I've never swept on um, competitively. So, you know, it's been a process. And so every event, I feel like I get a little bit better. You know, he gives me a tip here and there, and I work on that. And and so for him, you know, he's kind of taken me under his wing a little bit, not only in the technical side of sweeping, but I would argue the more important part almost is uh, the judging, you know, the the managing of rocks and all that kind of stuff because – you know, when Kev's throwing a draw to the pin, we can, if he's close, we can, we, we make or miss that shot depending on how we manage his sweepers. Right. So, you know, I've, I've learned a lot so far throughout the season. And so we've, you know, we have really, really good communication, him and I about paths and, you know, as the rocks coming down the sheet uh, where we think it is and we're getting better and better every event. But yeah, like you said, he's a, he's a pro and he's a vet and I've been leaning on him a lot to, to teach me the ways. Now, taking you back to the offseason for a moment, Jacques, from a mindset perspective, how did you process the transition from being on a team, still finding its way on the men's tour and striving to reach the top tier, and then suddenly being thrust into a critical role on one of the better teams in the world? There's a couple of things. The, the first thing for me is that uh, 
kind of, as I mentioned earlier in 2018, you know, losing a Tyler and then losing again the next year, I just realized, you know, I kind of wanted to win, uh, you know, regardless. And so for me, it was really easy to park my ego and turn, and, you know, I'm still working on transitioning from the difference in my role on the team as a second versus as a skip, but, uh, it's easier to park my role as a skip because, or sorry, park, park my ego in place second, just because, you know, I've had a lot of tough losses in my life and I realized that this is the best opportunity for me to, to grow and improve as a player. And so, you know, it's also really easy for me because I'm playing under, you know, two guys that I have such high respect for, you know, obviously Kevin's one of the best players to ever play, but I, you know, I've always been Tyler's one of Tyler's biggest fans. And, uh, you know, I, we have a really, really good support system, you know, even on our team, the three of us, me, Clark and Tyler are very supportive of each other on the other end. And we know that Kev's Kev's that same way on the other side. And so I think that's been the easiest part for me is I've been really pleasantly surprised at how fast we've bonded as a team. Um, you know, going into the season, I wasn't sure how that was going to work. I had been kind of physically preparing for this move, but uh, you know, the mental side of it, it's like, okay, well, now it's actually happening. And now it's time to actually do the thing that you've been preparing for for the last three, four years to play front end for a top tier team. And so I was trying to get mentally ready for that. And it, it, it's almost impossible to do it because we had a couple team meetings, you know, and getting to meet each other. But I remember hitting the ice for the first time and it, it's just a different ball game out on the ice. And so we learned, I, I would say we learned an insane amount. Our first event in Okotoks, I think we played almost 10 event or 10 games in every game. We got so much better, uh, you know, as a team. And so it's still a process to be honest with you, Frank, like we're still getting better. We're still working on things, but um, you know, as far as, as far as the mental difference, uh, being a second I think I've I'm getting more and more used to it and we'll see if I can keep getting better at it I think it's fair to say Jacques that uh, traditionally uh, time management has been an issue for Kevin Cooey in the past Uh, you know there's many examples of him running down the ice or or throwing a rock with one or two or five seconds left on the clock in important moments at the end of games so I'm wondering if you if you implemented anything heading into this season to limit having to fight against the clock as much as Kevin has had to do in the past. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that's a good point. Uh, I think you, like you touched on, we have three guys that have skipped before and I don't think Carrick gets enough credit actually for how, how well he understands the game and how well he sees the game. Um, and so I think that kind of feeds into it, itself that, you know, Yes, I, I'm down there and I might have an opinion, but my, my only thing is that I only want to point out a shot if I don't think we've seen it or I don't think we've talked about it enough. The, a lot of the shots that we play, I believe, are, um, you know, personal preference. You know, being a skip, there's so many shots where it's like you could play the hit or you could play the draw. One Maybe one's for one, one's for two, whatever it is, but it's all about comfort level. And so on any shot that I think it's totally up to Kevin and how he's feeling, I'm not going to weigh in because that just adds another voice into his head. And like he said, if anything, that depletes our time a little bit more. So for me, I don't want to give him any additional options. I want to point out things in case I don't think that we've looked at them enough, but that's, you know, maybe a one per game basis. I kind of just stay at the other end and let Karik and Tyler talk to him. And if I feel like it's gone on too long, then I kind of, I go to the other end and I either weigh in or I kind of drag Carrick back with me. But, uh, you know, we've 
it's funny. Our first event, I, I kind of mentioned in Okotoks, wasn't timed. It was in a club, but it wasn't timed. There was no bell or anything. And we played a couple, a couple three-plus-hour games. And we were, you know, me and Tyler, and we had our coach, John Dunn, there at the time. And we were all on the same page. So we're just not going to get away with that. That's not going to fly. And it, it, funny enough, at the Grand Slams, we were never short on time. The two slams that we played so far this year, we've never been short on time. We've, we spent, I think we had a half-hour end with Nick Adine earlier, but that's about it. I mean, I think Kev's been a bit more decisive this year. Uh, maybe it's a, a matter of circumstance, but it's it's something that all four of us are aware of, that Kev, Kev likes to take, you know, he likes to think things through. And uh, the fact is, is that we've had a couple shots that Kev's rifled off with 10, 15 seconds, but I would argue that there might not be a better player on the planet to do that. It, Kev unflappable when it comes to that that if he's got 15 seconds or 15 minutes he's going to throw out the exact same and so we get a little bit of comfort out of that but yeah we could definitely be more mindful of the time for sure and finally jock i came this close to introducing you as mr october at the start of this interview because that's your month in the 2024 men of curling calendar tell me a little bit about that experience and who you're raising funds for through your participation in this project yeah, no, it's uh, it's a great uh, it's a great initiative. I'm super proud to be part of it. Uh, I got a call from uh, George Carries, who runs it. Uh, he reached out to me, does the recruiting and all that kind of stuff for it. And he, uh, I was really excited to be part of it. I'd seen all the the calendars in the past, and so uh, I mean, for the photo shoot, I had none other than my uh, my fantastic girlfriend Carly take pictures of me. <laughs> we had a little pool day. Um, and so I figured it'd be a perfect time to kind of, you know, pun intended, double dip and have some fun and also, you know, take care of that. It was kind of a cool shot. I, uh, I got my inspiration from Mike McEwen a few years ago. He did the tuck on like a cinder block. And so I thought it was kind of a cool shot, the side profile. You don't really get to see that much, uh, especially for the tuck delivery. And so, yeah, it was a fun experience. I mean, I had some a few friends over and had some prof- some of their professional opinions, you know, on what angles to shoot and whatnot. And uh, yeah, I think it came out great. Um, the uh, the cause that I picked is uh, the the funds are for the Breston Guiney Centers. Uh, we have a couple here in Manitoba, and uh, that is in honor of the late Lois Fowler, a very very close family friend, especially to. Uh, to my mom, and it's something that she cared about very, uh, very dearly. My mom and uh, Lois have always been very active in that space. My mom's a big, um, always been a big advocate and, uh, and supporter of breast cancer. And there's an annual breast cancer golf tournament here in uh, in uh, Winnipeg that she's actively part partaking in every single year. And so it's always been something for me that's been, you know, in the back of my mind and something that I care about. And so then obviously, you know, in the last few months we've lost Lois. And so I, I felt like it was a perfect way to uh, to honor her and, and, and uh, help a cause that I care about. And that does it for this week's episode. A huge thank you to Emma Miskew and Jacques Gauthier for joining me this week. Also, don't forget to check out our partners and friends in the Curling Podcast Network. The Two Girls in the Game Podcast, The Rock Logic Podcast, and The Curling Legends Podcast. I'm Frank Rock, and you're listening to the From the Hack Curling Podcast, part of the Curling News and Sports Illustrated Partnership.